So um, I hope all of you have had a useful day. Notice I didn't say a pleasant day. And uh, I think if you asked yourself that question on whether the day was useful, you would probably get a variety of responses. <laughs> Some of you might say, oh, you know, it really wasn't. I don't know what I was doing here, or I was bored. Um, I kept wanting to leave. I was restless. Lots of sleepiness. Couldn't stay awake. Sometimes I could uh, focus my attention on my breath for a little while, and then it was useful. But most of the time I was off. I didn't even know that I was breathing. And inside, in each one of those responses, I say to myself, oh, the practice is working perfectly. It's working perfectly. Now, how can I make that kind of response? How could I possibly say that to you? Hopefully, by the end of the talk, we'll understand that all the practice does is reveal yourself to you. And it doesn't clothe us or wrap us in any particular delightful package. It just shows us what we are. In hospice care, we say that people die in character. Well, people come on to retreat in character that it's the character that is revealed on retreat. And we quite likely have spent our lives shopping for a better character. But this is what we've got. And this is what's being revealed. You know, when I grew up, I was a Boy Scout. And they told me I had to be trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. There's not much in there for being a boy. And I grew up thinking that that was, those were the qualities that I wanted to nourish. That somehow those were the all-American qualities that would lead to some sort of useful life. But what about the other side of those qualities? Being rude. <laughs> Being impatient. <laughs> Being frustrated. Where is there in the Boy Scout or Girl Scout creed any sense that those qualities can be respected or to be acknowledged? I don't find them there. So we're left looking at the sunny side of life. And the shadow, of course, is the forgotten quality that we tuck into the hidden corners of our closet. And we wonder why it's so difficult to be natural. (laughs) 
Coca-Cola tells us to be natural is to be clear. Have you seen that one? Clear Coke is natural Coke. <laughs> I uh, once with, was with a dying patient. And he uh, was getting close to the end of his life and he said to me, I don't know how to be with my dying. And I didn't understand what he meant really. And I, I said, what do you mean you don't know how to be with your dying? And he says, all my life, people have told me how to be in a particular situation. And I have learned um, very uh, acutely to change and to, to fit the situation, to fit the expectation of the situation with, and give the situation what is called for, give the person what they seem to be wanting from me. And he said, now I'm dying and death won't let me pretend. Now hold that for a second. You see, what can we add there to death? In my experience of more than a dozen years of hospice work, some of the people who die the most difficult are the people who define themselves to be the most spiritual. Because many people who get into this work feel as if there are certain qualities in the way that they should die. They should die with smiles on their faces. They should die with calm and quiet hearts. They should die with serenity. And they use that to avoid the human response of the screams that are heard within. And they have used their own spiritual training to back them away from their humanness. Well, it would have been far better to do nothing at all. The screams that we heard in ourselves today were the screams of our humanity. And though the, all of those screams, every one of them, from boredom to restlessness to sleepiness to wanting to leave, are the sum total of the voices that we live with within our consciousness. It's the sum total of our naturalness. Eliminate any aspect of any one voice and we are on the road to pretension. We are pretending to be other than what we are. And this meditation practice brings us into our humanness. 
Now you would think that that would be easy to, to be. We would think that all we would have to do to be human is to be what we already are. But we have learned to distort ourselves away from that humanness, away from the screams of today, thinking that what we really want is a quiet time where I can just kind of go into a tranquility zone, no thoughts, and then on Monday, I leave here, smiling faces, warm hearts. And for some, that may happen. Stick around this process long enough and it may happen to you as well. But that's not what the desirable form is. We're not asking for no thoughts. We're not asking for serene smiles. We're not asking for laid-back personalities, smooth, equanimous creatures. (laughs) We're asking you to be human beings. Learn it now and do not suffer when you die. I've often thought about what it would be like for me when I'm in my last days and I see myself screaming, sometimes railing against the diminishment of my life and other times perhaps quietly accepting it. And that's after 20 years of meditation and more than a dozen years of hospice care. I once went and saw a stage performance by Marcel Marceau. He was a Maybe, I don't know if he's still alive, but he was a very famous mime. It's about 30 years ago, 25 years ago. And he did a skit called The Mask Maker. And in that skit, without any props, of course, he was just using his facial expressions. And he was making happy masks and sad masks. And he would take the mask and he would put it on and it would be a happy mask and his face would light up and he would take that mask off and put the sad mask on and his face would all be distorted in sorrow. And he would do this very quickly and to the delight of the audience until he got the happy mask stuck on his face. And his body couldn't get the happy mask off. And it was distorted and disfigured in pain trying to get this mask off. Finally, he was able to pry the happy mask off, revealing the enormous sorrow below. We have to be willing to face the sorrow. We have to be willing to face what we fear lies under our pursuit of that smile. We have to be willing not to be happy. 
for this practice to really work for us, to work for our benefit. You see, the Eightfold Path is like a path that strips old paint from the house. It's paint thinner. (laughs) And it reveals the raw wood underneath the paint. And as we're stripping away the paint through this Eightfold Path, we begin to see why it is that we painted the wood to begin with. All of that's revealed. And there may be messages written on the bare wood. The messages of sorrow, the messages of pain of our childhood that led to the painting in the first place. And many of us would rather paint the wood a different color than to see it in its raw form. And so we hook up with the Eightfold Path as a way to distort or further pretend rather than to get to the natural grain. And so we hear words like tranquility, quietude, concentration, and we think, yes, that's what I want to be. I want to be tranquil. I want to be focused, centered, equanimous, calm, self-assured, confident. So we paint the wood red and blue and green and yellow and white and red until we get tired of the coats We get tired of the brushwork. The screams of today were from that raw wood. They don't go away because we paint it. They just are there and we try to distort their calling. But really, where they're calling us is it's the the calling of the heart to come back, to come back home, to return. To be who we long to be. Don't you feel that? What brings you here if it's not that? Don't you long to return back before time? The way to do that is through the screams not in spite of the screams, not in deference to the screams or deterring from the screams. It's through the screams, into the screams, through the paint.
through the paint to our humanity. There are two very important assumptions that we make about our life that we have to that we have to investigate that keep us from really dealing with our own humanity and those assumptions these two assumptions are very very deeply ingrained in most of us here the first assumption is that I need to change myself that I need to alter myself that I need to become something different than what I am in order to regain my naturalness. And we're left with that constant sense of checking within ourselves as we go through the ups and downs of our life, trying to become what we think or project that situation calls for or needs from us. It's what I call the Annie Hall effect. Because if any of you saw the movie Annie Hall, where she is talking to Woody Allen, and underneath the ca caption of the movie, she's saying, oh, why did I say that? My God, he must think I'm stupid. Oh, I've got to be smarter than that, or I'll never get his affection. And I've got and all of this checking, checking, checking all along the way. Now, do most of us have running captions in our relationships? How many people do we know who we can really be safe with? And the beauty of Dharma, and in particular I think the beauty of the Sangha, is that there is a growing sense of safety that people permit in relationship. Because for me to come out of my pretension most of us need, I certainly do, a sense that I won't be judged, I won't be evaluated, I won't be condemned for expressing the rawness of that wood. And the beauty of Sangha is that although incomplete in our growth, we're growing into that ability to provide the safety, not only for ourselves, but when we really see the value of it for the other person as well. That's who all of us are here. The Buddha talked about the teaching and the community as being one in the same thing, not one better than the other, but equal in importance. And it, what it does is that it allows us to be ourselves without having to change. I mean, read any journal, New Age journal or the yoga journal or any journal, and it's filled with psychiatrists, psych psychologists, 
Uh, and this is not at all to say that there isn't a point, a place for that at all. There is a place for that, for exploration, self-exploration. But the way it's perceived by most of us is that these are ways to get away from ourselves, to change into something different, to have our auras cleaned so that I won't have dirty auras. (laughs) And that will allow me to shine better or something. To have my chakras whirled. I remember reading oh, many years ago a Tibetan teacher, Trumpa Rinpoche, who said, you got to go through the dung heap of your personality. You have to shovel it. So when we look at it that way, when we understand that, then we don't get so fixed on being so bad. We don't take it so personally that there may be some qualities in ourselves that are under immature, that are reactive. It's not so awful to have those qualities because we all have them. All of us, teachers, yogis. There, I just broke your bubble. We all have that. And the expression of our full consciousness, the ability to allow all of that to reveal itself within the collection of our acceptance and allowance and our awareness is the Dharma. For the moment we start shielding ourselves from part of that continuum, from our impatience, our restlessness, our self-hatred, from any of those qualities that we don't like within ourselves. We create the shadow, and thereby we have fixed the fact that it will be with us until we open to it at some other time. The shadow by its very nature means that we are refused to allow it to reveal itself to us, or it wouldn't be the shadow. Now this is a revolutionary act of change by radical acceptance of ourselves. Full-hearted acceptance now of ourselves. The second quality, the second assumption that we make in this practice and that we have to question again. The first was, I should change. And the second related to that, but for spiritual people, often having even a greater hold on us, is the need to be good. I want to be a good person. I want to be honest. I don't want to kill. It resonates with us, you see? Nonviolence. It resonates with us. But we try to make it 
into a limited mind quality. True goodness, true non-harm, is present in the totality of our acceptance. Not in shielding part of ourselves, the part that rages and wants to create harm, not in eliminating that part of the anger part, the rage within you, not in that elimination, not in the smothering of that quality, but in the full-hearted exposure of that, the risking of that quality to be fully within me. It's an enormous risk because we don't know what will become when we really open and say, oh yes, okay, anger, yes. We don't know what will become with that, and that scares us. And that doesn't seem to be goodness. That doesn't seem to be taking me to goodness. Anger, how can that take lust? How can that take me to any kind of goodness? And it's not until we see how shielding ourselves from the whole continuum of our quality, of our characteristics, creates that shadow which will never allow us to come to that spot where our heart really connects in basic goodness. And we get tired of that because it's always lurking there. And the harder I try, the more it lurks with the more power and the more force within my mind until I have to lay down my arms. I give up. I can't do it anymore. I remember once I was in a retreat in Thailand, I was enclosed in a little hut. And I was in that little hut for three months and didn't go outside. People brought me food. And the first two weeks of that retreat, it was out on some swamps with the, the, the hut was built on swamps and there were snakes and all kinds of stuff. And I was just scared to death. I was absolutely scared. I couldn't go to sleep at night thinking snakes were going to come up. And it was just, I was just, uh, I spent two weeks, the first two weeks of that retreat in absolute terror. I'd wake up in terror. I'd eat in terror. I'd bathe in terror and I'd go to sleep in terror. And I, even though I'd been practicing years at that point, I thought, this is it. This is the permanent mind state. This is the one that doesn't change. I found it. They lied to me all this time. And I got so, I mean, I, I tried to do everything. I tried to watch it. I tried to be with it. <laughs> I, I tried to do everything that we've been telling you to do. <coughs> Feel it in my body. But it was always with the attitude that I wanted to get rid of it, waiting for it to end. And I got so tired of that, that literally after two weeks time, I said, I don't care. I'm going to die in fear. That's the way I'm going to die. That's it. And I just absolutely surrendered to that mind state. And it dissipated. In the understanding, it dissipated. Because when you let down your guard, you can really see it. I can't see it as long. When I'm peeking through pinholes of my self-protection, there's no understanding 
that is generated there. When we're so afraid of our anger or our impatience or our boredom that we are unwilling to allow it to come within me fully and be bored, fully and be impatient, when there's any sense of protection, there's no understanding. I'm obscuring the truth and there can be no basic goodness. I want life without fear. You think fear is going to go away because we want life without fear? Do you think our anger is going to go away because you happen to have been raised by an angry father and you saw the hideous qualities of a man out of control? And because of that, you refuse to allow anger in your consciousness? You think it's going to go away? That is not how the mind works. That is not how the mind works. Dropping the arms. Okay. What's the worst thing that can happen for a feeling, with a feeling? The worst thing that can happen is that you would feel it. That's it. It's only that much, as Ajahn Chah said. We give enormous power to qualities of mind that have no power whatsoever. Why? Because we refuse to look at them and see that they don't have any power. We refuse to face them and watch them literally vanish in front of our eyes. Powerless to do anything, to drive us anywhere. I hope our arms are getting tired from all the day scream and all the protection that we went through. I hope our arms are getting tired. It's time because the meditation is working. The practice is working. Are we going to acknowledge it? Are we going to go away from this three-day retreat shaking our heads and say, I'm never doing that again? <laughs> no ideals. We'll not live by an ideal anymore. We'll not live by a fictional sense of self. I will tell another story real quick here. Our hospice was um, opened, uh, has a grief support group for uh, community people as well as people who have gone through the hospice program. And one man came in who had not been served by the hospice program. Uh, into our grief support group and we went around uh, and we usually ask each person to talk about his or her story uh, and what brings them to this grief support group. Well this particular man said that he had lost his wife uh, about 
seven years ago, and um, that he was in an all, still in a lot of turmoil around that. And so when we asked him to tell us his story, he said that when the two of them had gotten married many, many years earlier, some 50 or 60 years earlier, they had made a promise, a single vow, almost a marriage vow, in which the each had promised the other that they would never put either person in the nursing home. And they had lived with that vow for 50-some years until uh, the man's wife had come down with Alzheimer's disease. And she, for a while it was fine, they were living together comfortably, and then she started to wonder wander out of the house and um, almost get run over by traffic or lose her way or lead, leave the uh, burners on on the stove and just do a lot of things which many people who have Alzheimer's do. And her, his son, uh, who was grown, uh, really try, persuaded or tried to persuade the husband to put his wife in a uh, nursing home as well as the man's and wife's doctor. They said, you just can't do it anymore. This is just getting, I know your vow, but you just really need to do it. So he did. And two weeks after he puts her in a nursing home, she dies. And he says, for the next seven years, he didn't live a single day without the guilt and shame of having done and broken, done that and broken the vow. Where is there any sense of self-allowance in that? Self-forgiveness, for God's sake. For being less than our perfection. Less than our perfect ideal. That man was torturing himself because he wouldn't allow himself to be a human being. He wouldn't allow himself to be less than his ideal. Stories are coming to me tonight, so I'm kind of full of them here. So I'll just put them out as I think of them. Uh, another uh, uh, salmonera or um, novice that I... Um, was with in Thailand. Uh, he stayed in the city in Bangkok and every time I would come up to the city uh, to get a visa or something, he would be there uh, marking off days in his calendar when he could disrobe and leave, leave the novice. And he was about, oh, at that point he was like 50 or 60 years old. And I, was, I said, Bill, if you're that interested in, in uh, leaving the monkhood, why did you ever ordain in the first place? I mean, it seems a little silly. And he says, well, I'll tell you why. He said he was a Korean war pilot. And uh, one thing that happened while he was um, a pilot was that uh, a boat left North Vietnam full of refugees down to South, no, North 
uh, Korea down to South Korea. And uh, the South Koreans uh, sent a rescue boat out to the refugees, uh, or maybe it was a army boat or something, or I don't know. Another boat went alongside of it, and the refugee boat blew itself up. It was a booby trap, and it shattered and killed all the people uh, in the other boat, the, the South Korean boat that was a military boat. So that happened, and then two weeks after that, another boat left North Korea full of refugees. And Bill was a pilot after this first incident. Bill was a pilot uh, flying above this refugee boat. And he was ordered to bomb this boat because of what had happened two weeks earlier. And he did so, except it was full of refugees. 278 refugees. And he had ordained for 278 days. And he said that when he was a young man, he could just let that go. Well, it's war. But he said as he got older and advanced in life, he could no longer live with himself any longer knowing that he had killed 278 people and that this began to haunt him and that what he wanted to do was do some penance. Now, I don't think, however grisly our stories are, that it probably comes close to that. Can we open our hearts just a little bit to allow ourselves to be human beings and to make mistakes? Which means that we feel the grief of all the things that we were incomplete in doing and the problems and the pain that we have caused in our life. We feel that grief. We don't avoid that. We don't shy away from that. But we begin to acknowledge that we all are trying to do the best we are that we can. And that somehow doing the best that we can as even as incomplete of an act that that may produce is all that we can do. And that that's what it means to be human. That we do the best we can. And our hearts should open to that. We shouldn't shy away from that. We shouldn't think that we should be doing better than we can do. We can just do what we do. We just try to stay as alert and as aware and as conscious and as alive as we can. And sometimes we can do that, and sometimes we can't. And sometimes we do a very skillful act, and other times it's very unskillful. And we learn from that. We pick ourselves back up, and we go ahead. Because we are doing the best we can do. Moment after moment, we are doing the best we can do. 
and today, amid all your screams, we did the best we could do. Hopefully, with a little more understanding, those screams will really become the product of our meditation itself, the focus of our meditation, the aliveness of our meditation, the energy of our meditation, the heart of our meditation. They are alive. Anger is alive. It's calling out for your aliveness. It wants the attention of your aliveness. That's where God meets man at the Sistine Chapel. Life meeting life. Acknowledging it. Opening to it. Having the courage. Stripping the paint. If you stay with this practice long enough, there will be nothing that the mind can give you. Nothing that the mind can present that will be shied away from. That's an amazing thing to be comfortable with whatever the mind can put out whatever the range on that continuum. That's an amazing thing. And if you want to strive for something, strive for that total acceptance. Strive for a heart that denies nothing. And come back home. Come back home. Can we sit for a few minutes? As we're sitting, I'd like to read a short quote from the Dalai Lama. Only as human beings can we develop the quality of wisdom and compassion that liberate us from deluded existence? To waste even a moment of our precious lives on destructive or self-centered concerns is considered by Buddhists a falling away from our innermost human nature. In truth, to fully accept that, every aspect of ourselves is Buddha Dharma.
So we have 45 minutes for walking meditation.